Thanks for listening to this special podcast series, Questioning Christianity. This short series is meant to address common questions people have about the claims of the Christian faith. In each podcast, Tim Keller addresses a variety of questions like, can there be moral absolutes? And how can you believe in something you can't prove? We encourage you to share this podcast with others and discuss the topics addressed with friends. And for more content about exploring Christianity, visit gospelandlife.com slash explore. We've been sharing fun facts about Tim, and this week we'll share that for many of us, coffee is our favorite and our very important part of our days. Uh, Tim drinks none of it, but he's an avid tea drinker, and it's been known that he carries around his own big bag of teas. And if you're curious, his favorite teas tend to be Chinese black teas, specifically Hao Ya A. Not B, Hao Ya A. All right, so that's a fun fact about our speaker tonight. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Timothy Keller. Okay. Um, the very first week when we met, we, I tried to set things up and I, uh, for this entire series, and I think I need to at least refer to it each week because I don't expect everybody can be here every week or watch it every week. But we said the first week... That there's a <clears throat> that there's no uh, totally absolute uh, way to prove that there is a God. There's also no way to completely demonstrably prove that there is no God. And therefore, in a sense, everybody's living by faith. And uh, secularism, I said, even secularism, that uh, where people say, "I don't know if there's a God, maybe there isn't, or there's no God." Secularism is actually not a, uh, an absence of faith. It's actually a, a new set of beliefs. It's not the absence of belief. It's, it's a new set of beliefs. So, for example, um, if you ask a secular person, <clears throat> where did matter come from? They'll say uh, either it generated itself or it's always been there, except we don't know any. Matter doesn't behave like that. Matter doesn't generate itself. Matter doesn't there's no such thing as matter that has always existed beginninglessly. And so as soon as you say that, you realize there's no way to prove that. And therefore, we are all living by faith. Secularism is a whole new set of beliefs about human rationality, human purpose, uh, the nature of the material world, moral value, etc. And everybody's got a set of beliefs about reality, and nobody can demonstrably, demonstrably prove that their beliefs are right. Well, then you say, does that mean that we're sort of stuck Everybody has their beliefs. There's no way to rationally interrogate them. There's no way to, to actually come to a reasonable conclusion of which one is most likely true. Even if you can't prove it, is there some way to reasonably uh, weigh these? <clears throat> and my answer here and what we've been doing is the answer is, I think, yes. You compare beliefs. You don't ask any one of them to prove slam dunk. What you do is you compare beliefs and you start to ask them questions like this. Uh, which of these sets of beliefs are the most consistent with our experience? Which of these are the most consistent with the evidence? There may not be slam dunk proofs, but there's evidence pro and uh, you know, for and against God, etc. Which of these beliefs is the uh, most consistent with experience? Which of these beliefs is the most ex uh, consistent with uh, evidence? And which of these sets of beliefs is most consistent with themselves? In other words, <clears throat> Do you have a set of beliefs that has to smuggle in values from other sets of beliefs? In other words, are they cons inter internally consistent? Each week we're taking another subject 
and asking that question. We're comparing different worldviews, different, different sets of beliefs. Sometimes we do other religions, but by and large, we've been comparing Christianity and secularism. And so last week we talked about morality. This week we're going to drill down a little bit more and talk more specifically about justice and human rights. What we're actually saying is given what we believe and know about human rights, does secularism or Christianity better support human rights? Now you say, what do you mean by support? Does secularism or Christianity better support human rights? What does it mean to support? Okay, I'll give you two ways. Which of those sets of beliefs does a better job of explaining why people have human rights? And then secondly, which set of beliefs motivates people to sacrificially give up their power and privilege in order to support human rights, equal human rights? So which set of beliefs actually fits what we know about human rights the best? So let's proceed, let's answer that question by asking four more questions. One is, what are human rights? That can be brief, because there's a lot of consensus about that. What are human rights? Where did the idea come from of human rights? What are the problems that right now secular society has with human rights? And what, <clears throat> what can Christianity contribute? So number one, what, uh, what are human rights? Uh, human rights are this. When a human being comes into your presence, they come uh, with, you might say, obligations and claims. They have the right not to be silenced, not to be mistreated, not to be abused, to be treated as people of equal worth and dignity. So people come into your presence with a claim, with a right to be treated as people of equal worth and dignity. And the most important question here is, uh, they have those rights by virtue of what? Not by virtue of their race, so that some races have rights and others don't. Not by virtue of their gender. Not by virtue of uh, their ethnicity, but not by virtue even of their economic worth or you know, their income uh, potential or their, even their usefulness to society or their talents. No, everyone, we believe, human rights mean we have the, every human being has the right to be treated as a being of equal dignity and worth just by virtue of them being human. It has nothing to do with their race, their class, their educational level, their, you know, the ability to generate income. They, they have to be treated as beings of equal worth and dignity just by virtue of being a human being. Okay. Where did that idea come from? But that's, that's the first point. And by the way, that was a very short first point, but please don't get your hopes up. Uh, second point, um, where did the idea come from? Because, you know, it's a relatively new idea, uh, and it's really arisen in the West in the last couple hundred years. So where did the idea come from? Now, what I'm about to tell you may seem, and you can ask me more about this, of course, that's what we're here to do, is you can talk back at Question Christianity, but this may seem pretty counterintuitive to the average person, but increasingly you've got scholarship, high-level scholarship, that is saying the, human, the idea of human rights arose in Christian Europe in the late Middle Ages, and uh, it came, uh, they, they developed in the West, not in other parts of the world, because Christianity, and especially in the Bible, had several uh, views, beliefs, doctrines, you might say, that the other cultures and uh, societies of the world did not have. And human rights were a result of uh, meditation on these doctrines. One of the doctrines of the Bible is the doctrine of the image of God. 
Because the Bible says that every single human being has been made in the image of God, reflects God in some way, and therefore is of equal preciousness. So there's places in the Bible, not only that says you can't kill people because they're in the image of God, there's a place in the Bible where it says you shouldn't even curse at people because they're beings in the image of God. Uh, and uh, this is, this was, there is no other culture that had a belief like that. Aristotle, by the way, very famously said he believed that some people deserved to be slaves or were fit to be slaves. Aristotle thought that, that uh, the more rational people uh, deserved more honor, and therefore if you had uh, a race that was more emotional than rational, maybe they deserved to be servants and the rational people deserved to be the, the masters. And so uh, in most places in the world, people saw uh, very often people of other civilizations and races not as fellow human beings, but of actually different species. But the Bible said every human being is made in the image of God, every single one. That was unique. Secondly, the Bible also says that human choice matters, that uh, other religions and cultures of the world actually believed that everything was fated, and the Greeks and the Romans believed that, that your choices, your decisions didn't really matter. It, it basically, everything was determined. But Christianity comes along, the Bible comes along and says, you're saved by your choices. You're saved by making decisions. And therefore, the ability to make a free choice, the ability of the individual to make a free choice you, 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 can't, you, know, you can't be saved by what your family has said. You've got to make that decision, or you're not saved. You, know, you don't have a relationship with God. And that whole idea suddenly meant the individual was extremely important. So first of all, you had the doctrine of the image of God, the doctrine that human choices were significant. The third thing was that this body and this physical world was real and important. The other religions of the world, the other cultures, saw this world as really not being important, uh, the Greeks, of course, believed that the spirit was important, the body was really not. It, it was a kind of a discardable receptacle of the soul. Uh, of course, a lot of Eastern religions believe that the physical world is actually an illusion. And, of course, there's not a lot of incentive to improve physical conditions of the poor and all that with that understanding. But the Bible says, no, the body is important. God made the world and made, made the physical world good. He's going to resurrect and renew this physical world. And therefore, how people are treated in the body matters. And one last point was that the Bible teaches that God himself is personal. He's not just this impersonal force. Uh, he's personal. And in the afterlife, we, we maintain our personalities. That's why John Updike uh, has a fascinating place in his memoirs where he says one of the reasons he wants to be a Christian is he says, I believe in being a self forever. Where other, you know, other religions believe, yes, the spirit goes on, but you kind of go, you lose your individuality. It's like a dewdrop going into the ocean. That's the Buddhist approach. And uh, no, Christianity, the Bible always said, you are a personal self forever. And if you put all those things together, what does that mean? Larry Seedentop of Oxford University, just a few years ago, wrote a book called Inventing the Individual. And he says it was Christianity that came up with the idea that the individual is more important, that the individual has rights that every single individual has equal rights. Brian Tierney of Cornell University, a historian, has also done a lot of work in this area and said, yeah, the idea of human rights came from the Bible. It would not have arisen without that. And by the way, uh, atheists like Friedrich Nietzsche and today John Gray, who's also an atheist, they all agree that if it wasn't for those biblical doctrines, the idea of human rights and individual uh, the importance of the, in, the, the dignity of the individual would never have arisen. 
However, okay, that's where they came from. Now, that may seem counterintuitive. An awful lot of people say, well, I always thought the church was against human rights and it was secular people that came up with the idea of human rights. No, no. Now, number three, what kind of problems does the secular world, though, have with human rights? Because the secular world is not a crisp. The gov our governments are secular. Our society is probably de uh, in a de decreasingly uh, Christian. That is, Christianity uh, is declining in the West, Europe, and North America. And increasingly, people are secular. So how do they then figure out human rights? And of course, this is a problem. And actually, it's a big problem for secular, uh, the secular world. Um, you know, the, uh, in, right after World War II, the United Nations drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it's famous because it was the first time that human rights were all put down in a document with no basis for it. In other words, it didn't say God. Uh, you know, it didn't say like the Declaration of Independence, you know, that, uh, you know, that these inalienable, inalienable rights are the gift of the Creator. It didn't do that. It just didn't talk about any basis. It just said they're just there. The implication was you don't have to believe in God to believe in human rights. We just know that they're there. Common sense. You know, no, no, no reason why we have to give. It, this is just the way it is. <clears throat> and this has created enormous problems in the modern world. To, to, uh, to bring this to a kind of uh, point to, to show you the to focus this uh, this uh, problem. Let me tell you a story about a woman. Uh, she wrote an article in 1995 in the Chronicle of Higher Education. She's now retired. She was a pretty prominent cultural anthropologist at Rhode Island College. She's retired now. Pretty prominent. And <clears throat> her name is Carolyn Fleur Laban. Maybe Laban. I don't know. I'm not saying it right. Carolyn Fleur Laban. And she wrote a fascinating. Article 1995. And what she said was, she says, as a professional cultural anthropologist, I am trained not to be, never to go into a culture and ever come in with moral judgments about the values of a culture. In other words, I come into a culture and I would never say, your culture is bad, this culture is good, what are you doing? She says, as a cultural anthropologist, I make no moral judgments about the values of any particular culture. But then secondly, as a secular person, she said, I don't believe that there's such a thing as moral absolutes. I believe that all moral values are basically constructed by the particular culture. And you believe that right and wrong, but you do it because you're part of a particular culture. And moral values are invented. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not absolute. They're not up there in heaven. But she started doing cultural work, cultural anthropology work in Africa. And when she got there and she began working, she began to see what she considered the abuses of women in many of the African cultures. And she began to talk to the powers that be. She began to talk to people in authority there about her concerns. And they pushed back in a major way. <clears throat> now, I got this from somebody else. This is not actually from this article, but this is essentially, she said, this is basically what they said. They basically came to her, you know, and they said, hmm. Um, you say that all moral values are based on either evolutionary biology or they are con culturally constructed. And by your, on the basis of your own beliefs, it is completely inconsistent for you to say the way we treat women here is wrong. In our culture, you have your culture, we have our culture. 
And they go on to say, you speak as if these individualistic values that you have in the West are self-evident to all educated people. They aren't. You speak as if they are obvious to all rational people. We are rational, and you're not. These are beliefs. These beliefs about, this is, this is what they say, these, these beliefs about women's rights, these are beliefs, they're simply leaps of faith, and we don't share this faith, this faith that you have in the individual, the sovereignty of feelings and choice, and your overblown belief in science to solve human problems. When you simply present these things as self-evidently true, and when you tell us only primitive and unenlightened people will not see them, then you are being just the same white Western imperialists you have always been. Okay? So the problem is, uh, the, 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 the modern secular idea of human rights is that you don't need a basis for them. Uh, we don't believe in moral, moral absolutes, evolutionary biology, cultural construction, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we, we, we would never say, you know, one culture is not this, any better than another culture, but then we go to other places, we see that these are people that don't do individual rights, and now, if you go in there, you are wide open to charges of, of imperialism. Why? Because on the basis of your own beliefs, you have no right. No right to tell somebody of another culture that you're abusing women. No right at all. Now, what's interesting is, by the way, here's what, here's what she wrote. Listen. She said, for a long time, I felt trapped between my anthropologist's understanding of that moral value and the claims of human rights. Finally, I came to realize that there is a moral agenda larger than myself, larger than Western culture, and I decided to join my colleagues from other disciplines who began to work for women's rights in Africa. But, by the way, she's a white woman, just to let you know who Carolyn Fleur-Labrin is. Then she says, however, there still is a problem. What authority do we Westerners have to impose our own concept of individual rights on the rest of humanity? But I decided that this culturally relativistic argument that I always used is now being used by repressive governments to deflect international criticism of their abuse of their own citizens, so I won't listen to it. In other words, I got no basis in my own understanding of the world to believe in universal human rights as a moral absolute for all cultures. I got no basis to do it, but I believe it anyway, and I'm going to act on the basis of it. Okay. You see the problems. It's, uh, so what, what, what have sec a lot of secular thinkers see that. I wouldn't say the average person in the street sees that. The average agnostic or atheist that I talk to in New York City has always said, of course there's human rights, and everybody knows that. The trouble is they've never talked to somebody from another culture who says, I'm somebody and I don't believe that. So why should I believe in human rights? Why should I believe in that? Why should I believe in equal rights for women? And all you can say is blah, blah, blah. You know? And, of course, if you're a Westerner, especially if you're a white Westerner, you're in a real, you're in a real pickle. Because you're doing to them the very thing that you say they're not supposed to do. Which is, you know, kind of, it's kind of uh, you're, you're basically trying to say, you're trying to shut, shut them down. You're trying to say, even though I don't have any basis, my feelings take precedence over your feelings. Now, there's been four ways that secular thinkers in the last 30 or 40 years have been, have been working to try to ground human rights without God. And let me give you the four. And they're, they're all interesting efforts. Uh, where can you read about these? Well, 
just look around, there, there's a lot of, uh, Alan Dershowitz of Harvard University is emeritus now, has written a couple books on this, but you can read them other places. There's basically four ways that they say, hey, you can be secular, you don't have to believe in God, image of God, we don't need that, in order to not only explain human rights, but also motivate people to support them. The one is natural law. If we just look at nature, nature itself, we don't need religion, we don't need the Bible, nature itself just tells us that human beings are equal. Now, you need to know that the earliest secular people, now we're talking about 17th, 18th century, um, and I gotta say, pre-Darwin, <laughs> uh, there were many, many secular thinkers who said, we don't need the Bible to see the importance of the individual and the importance of equal human rights because we can just look at nature, we'll, we'll, we'll deduce it from nature. And then Darwin came along, and Darwin says, look at nature, and what you, nature is red in tooth and claw. Nature tells, for survival of the fittest, nature says stronger organisms eat the weaker organisms, and that's how evolution moves on. So why all of a sudden would you say, well, it's perfectly natural for the strong to eat the weak, but not for human beings, you can't do that, which means you're actually bucking natural law. So natural law won't help you. Remember last week, some of you were here, I read that fascinating <laughs> passage from Annie Dillard in Tinker Creek, and she lived by a creekside, and she just saw, she saw, one time she saw a giant water bug sting, paralyze a toad, and then stick its beak down into the, its head and suck it out. And so just leave the toad, uh, you know, just a, almost like a piece of clothing, his skin there, and <laughs> Annie Dillard, it, she says, I, you know, I have nightmares about that thing. And she says, so if, I, if I'm going to look at nature, that is not going to help me find human rights. So number two, the second thing that a lot, of hum, a lot of secular people would say is, well, you know, human rights are just things we create. We see that, world, that society goes better if we treat everyone as equal, if we treat every human being as valuable. And so we just create human rights. Now, interestingly, by the way, Alan Dershowitz and other people have said the same thing. That is a completely useless idea, because if you really say that we create them, we don't discover them, they're not there, we create them. If, the if we create them by majority vote, do you know what that means? They can be removed by majority vote. <laughs> See, if you say the majority creates them by voting them in and creating those laws, then that means, by the way, that any majority can vote to kill any minority, and no one can say boo about it, why? because the rights don't exist unless the majority votes it in. And therefore, what the Nazis did was fine, because it was majority. That went, you know, Hitler was, was, was elected. He was elected. He didn't take power. He was elected. And so what basically happens is um, uh, that just doesn't work. In fact, there's a great place where Dershowitz says this. He says, rights are useless unless they are discovered, not created, because the whole point of a human right he says the value of it is that a minority can urge, can claim the rights against the majority. I mean, that's the whole point of it, is to say to the majority, look, we don't have power, but we've got rights, and you cannot just put us under your boot. So he says if the majority can take away those rights because they actually don't exist unless the majority votes them in, well, then they're useless. So first, natural law, no. Secondly, we create them, no. Third, by the way, is an approach that says they are just capacities. Um, this, this is more recent, but there's a, a fair number of uh, secular thinkers who say, look, we can justify human rights. Why do we treat human beings 
as having rights that animals don't have, for example. Not that there aren't certain animal rights, but I mean, the point is, we don't give animals the right to vote and things like that. So the point is, what, um, why justify giving humans rights that we don't give to vegetables and we don't give to animals? And the answer is they can make rational, moral choices. They've got free will, not just instinct. They can consider, they can make rational choices, and therefore, because they have that rational choice capacity, Human rights is just simply recognizing that and saying you need to be free to exercise that rational choice. And therefore, human rights. But maybe some of you can see the problem. Number one, a lot of older people don't have the rational ability much anymore. And by the way, newborn infants don't either. For at least a year or two, probably. Or maybe longer than that. They can't make choices. And then here's the other problem is there's a whole lot of things that have evolved in human beings. Why is this the one that gets privileged? And, and where's the obligation? Who says that because uh, people make, can, you know, make rational choices that therefore they ought to? Who says that? Well, you're, you're actually saying it's good, it's right, you've got to. Why, why are you privileging freedom? That's a set of moral values that you're imposing on things. But the biggest problem, of course, is Peter Singer at Princeton University does say, because he believes human rights are based on capacities, that he doesn't have a problem with infanticide. And it's just the natural, um, uh, uh, which of course is a horrible thing, I think, but the point is, it's, it's, here I'm just trying to, I'm not trying to say he's a horrible person, I'm just trying to say what it does mean is if you try to ground human rights in capacities, that's where you go. Christianity grounds it in just the image of God. No matter who you are, if you're in, if you're in a coma, you're still in the image of God, even though you don't have rational abilities. If you're, if you're a, an old person with Alzheimer's, you're still in the image of God, even though you don't have rational choice. So the uh, natural law doesn't work, the we create doesn't work, the capacities doesn't work. I'll just tell you one more, just because it's kind of interesting, is I once was on a, a panel, I was, one, I was once having a, a really great discussion with a brilliant man who's not a believer in God, he's an atheist, and at one point, somebody asked him if he was a relativist. And he said, um, oh no, it would be terrible to say that, that there is no moral truth and everything is relative. He said, you couldn't have a society. He says, however, as an atheist, I'm also not a moral realist. He said, because if I was a moral realist, that means there's absolutes and, and I don't know what they would be, possibly be. Is the problem with being an atheist, he said, is all we have is the material world. We don't have any supernatural standard. So uh, how, how, can you, how can you elevate one part of the material world and say this is good and another part is bad? It's just what it is. So he doesn't believe in moral absolutes. He's not a moral realist and he's not a moral relativist. And then he says, I'm a moral emergentist. What he says is that when the human race comes to a, an overwhelming consensus about something, then, th then th that actually is a moral truth now. We've come to the place where a lot of things the human race now knows as, on a whole is, are true, and therefore that's, that's a moral absolute, even though it's emerged. And he looked at me, smiled, being a really nice guy, and said, I'll bet you think I'm a really a moral relativist. And I said, yes, I do. And here's what I could have said, and I didn't. I could have said, so, sir, because we were at, we were at a place where we had a lot of young college students. There were some 
there were plenty of people who didn't believe in God, plenty of people who did. And if I just said this, I said, so you were saying a thousand years ago that slavery was fine. 500 years ago was fine because there wasn't, a, there wasn't a moral consensus about it. That's what you're saying. And he would have had to say, yes, it's wrong now, but it wasn't wrong then. He would have lost everybody in the room, including all the young atheists who just, uh, just wouldn't accept it. So uh, here, you, look, I want to show you the, the Christian uh, contribution, but here's the question. Thank you for listening to Questioning Christianity. If you're exploring the claims of Christianity, we would like to send you a free book, Making Sense of God, by New York Times bestselling author Tim Keller. Our society places such faith in empirical reason, historical progress, and heartfelt emotion that it's easy to wonder, why would anyone believe in Christianity? As human beings, we cannot live without meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, justice, and hope. In this book, Dr. Keller demonstrates how Christianity provides modern people with unsurpassed resources to meet these needs. To request your free copy, go to gospelandlife.com free. Free copies will be shipped while supplies last. Again, that's gospelandlife.com free. Now, here's Dr. Keller with the remainder of his talk. If your premise that there's no God leads you to a conclusion you know isn't true, that there really aren't any such thing as human rights. Why not consider changing the premise? Or put another way, which I think may be a little more fair, is if, like Carolyn Fleur-Lobin said, if there was a God, you would expect it to be human rights. But just because, just because there's human rights doesn't mean there's a God, which is right. Just because there's human rights doesn't prove there's a God. Maybe they just exist. But would you at least admit or concede that uh, if we believe in human rights, if, we if you are here and you believe in human rights, that the existence of God explains your experience way better than the non-existence of God. That the, 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 view, the, the set of beliefs that said there is a God leads you to expect human rights would be there, and the view that there is no God, as you can see in this cultural anthropologist and, and, and this man I was uh, working with, if, if their beliefs really lead you to expect there are no human rights, but, but there are, well, who's living whose set of beliefs makes more sense of what we actually experience. Now, the last couple of minutes I'd like to talk about what is Christianity's uh, contribution. And you say, well, I thought you already told us. You said Christianity came with the idea. And of course, if you're a Christian and you believe in human rights, you don't have that same problem that, uh, that this cultural anthropologist had. Because even if somebody rejects your belief that, you know, women are being abused in, in Africa or wherever, she, uh, whatever nation she was in. At least if you come and say, there's a God and the Bible is his word and here's what the Bible says about that. And uh, at least they may not agree with you, but at least they're not going to call you a hypocrite. I'm not going to say that you are actually undermining your own view and actually you're being deeply inconsistent. They're not going to say that. So isn't that enough? No. Because, frankly, doing justice in this world is caught on the horns of a dilemma that I think Christianity uh, uniquely helps. And what is that dilemma? Okay, on the one hand, the problem is that people who think they have the truth tend to be oppressors. Now, here I'm talking about the phenomenon called postmodernism. And uh, 40 years ago, 35 years ago, uh, a French philosopher, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard, 
uh, wrote a very famous book on what is postmodernism, and he said, postmodernism is incredulity, that is skepticism, about any meta-narratives. That's the word, meta-narratives. Now, what's a meta-narrative? As you can see, a meta-narrative means a grand story or a, a, a grand explanation of everything, a theory of everything, uh, truth, capital T. And what he said is people who think they have the truth, they think they have a grand narrative, they've got an explanation for absolutely everything. Uh, it leads to oppression for three reasons. Number one, people who think they have the truth, the grand narrative, the theory of everything, that explains everything. Number one, it shuts down intellectual dissent because it purports to explain everything. So we don't want to hear from you because I've got the answers to everything. Secondly, it shuts down political consent because it tends to be utopian. People who think they have the truth say, if everybody in the world just did this, all of our problems would be over. If everybody just adopted our truth, and if we can just get our, our policies in place, the world's going to be great. And it's utopian. So, of course, what that means is you have to shut down political dissent. But number three, <clears throat> uh, Leotard says, uh, metanarratives just uh, engender a spirit of domination. If you have the truth, other people don't have the truth. It, you're just, you just have a sense of arrogance, and you have a sense that uh, we don't have to listen to you. We, ha we can marginalize you. We need to marginalize you. So for all those ways, in all those ways, he says, um, and he's got a really good point, that people who think they have that grand theory of everything, uh, it's oppressive. And what postmodernism did, interesting, Leotard, for example, said that Marxism was one of those grand narratives. And he's right. Because Marxism is absolutely, it shuts down dissent because it says we've got the explanation of everything. We can explain everything in terms of unjust social structures, everything. Number two, it shuts down political dissent. It always tends, you know, to say if we just, if we get the workers' paradise in there, everything will be fine. It has a spirit of domination. And what he, what uh, Leotard says is all meta narratives are totalizing. And what he means is they tend to totalitarianism. All meta narratives are totalizing, which means they, tend toward uh, totalitarianism. So he, he, Marxism was one of them. By the way, capitalism was one of them because he thinks actually the, the logic of the market, the idea that as long as uh, there's complete free enterprise, as long as there's untrammeled capitalism and there's no, uh, there's no regulations on it all, the free market will solve our problems. He says, uh, the, uh, of course, fascism is a totalitarian, is a totalizing meta-narrative and a kind of a racist nationalism. And so he has all these things. So what postmodernism would say is, nobody's got the truth. There is no meta-narrative. Because they're all totalizing. They all tend to totalitarianism. Nobody's got the truth. Nobody at all. And uh, every, everything is relative. And this was supposed to be the way to undercut the dominant narratives, which, which supposedly were the, were the source of the oppression. Marx was wrong. It's not social structures. It's it's the idea that there's truth. How has that worked out? Not too well, and I'll tell you why. Because there's the other, here's the other horn of the dilemma. Uh, in 2011, one of the things that shocked a lot of people was that the, um, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which is one of the leading cultural institutions in the world, um, had its first, it, it, it had a show there that was called the first comprehensive in retrospective on postmodernism. And the name of it was Postmodernism, 1970 to 1990, as if it was over. 
And that year, the Chronicle of Higher Education had an article in it called Postmodernism is Dead. Now listen carefully. Uh, and it was, it was talking about the, the show and why was it that there were so many people saying, you know, postmodernism, we tried it for 30 years and it's not working and we're going to move on to something else. Here's what the article said. He said, um, postmodernism was the idea of deprivileging any one meaning. Deprivileging any one meaning. This idea that all discourses are equally valid has therefore led to some real-life gains for humankind. Because once you are in the business of challenging the dominant discourse in any particular culture, you're also in the business of giving hitherto marginalized and subordinate groups their voice. Okay? But over time, a new difficulty has been created because postmodernism attacks everything, a mood of confusion and uncertainty began to grow and flourish. If we deprivilege all positions, we actually can assert no position, and therefore we cannot work for justice. And an aggressive postmodernism becomes, in the real world, indistinguishable from an odd species of inert conservatism. Looked at in this way, it's easy to see why its power has been diminishing. The postmodern salvation will no longer do as a response to the world we now find ourselves in. Do you get that? See, the real problem is if all claims of truth are power moves, and so is that, and then you have to ask yourself the question, why not keep my power? Tell me why I shouldn't keep my power. And the trouble was that postmodernism was trying to get us to a position where we could do um, um, you know, justice, but you have no basis for it in postmodernism. In fact, Terry Eagleton, who's a, a British literary critic, says, postmodernism is against binaries. Don't say, I have the truth and you do not have the truth. Binaries, good, evil, binaries. We're going to get rid of that. Everybody's right. Everybody's wrong. You know, we're going to deprivilege. He says the problem is what it does is it sets up a new binary. It says, you people with the truth are bad. We relativists are good. Same thing. You've done the same thing. And Simon Critchley recently, who's an atheist, he's a uh, British philosopher who uh, teaches at a uh, 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 new school here, recently wrote a book called Faith of the Faithless in which he said, he says, I am not happy to have to say this, but I don't see how we do justice without some belief in a transcendent divine order. How does Christianity help? You can find this online, so I'm going to give you five minutes on this and we're done. Uh, Richard Baucom, Scottish professor at St. Andrews, now retired, wrote an article in a book which you can find online. It's in a kind of PDF now. It's called Reading the Bible as a Coherent Story. And it is so fascinating. It, his argument starts... His argument starts by saying this. His argument starts by saying, we need a grand narrative that once again affirms universal values while resisting their co-option by the forces of domination. He says, we need a non-totalizing meta-narrative. We need a non-oppressive absolute. We have to believe in truth. We have to believe in universal values, or we get into all these you tie ourselves up in pretzels in order to even talk about justice, but it can't be a meta-narrative that turns us into oppressors ourselves, as all meta-narratives seem to do. And he suggests it's the biblical story of Jesus. Why? And here's what he says. Number one, remember the first problem with meta-narratives? In other words, they purport to answer all the questions, have all the answers, there's no room for debate. Well, 
Here's what's interesting. He said, read the Bible and get to, all, get to the book of Job. Job starts to suffer, and his friends come along and say, Job, we have all the answers. There's no way God would be letting you suffer unless you're a bad person. At the end of the book, by the way, God shows up, is furious at Job's friends, says, Job, better pray for you or I'm going to smite you, but never tells anybody why Job suffered. Never tells Job, never tells the friends. Uh, Richard Bauckham says, anybody who thinks the Bible gives you all the answers just doesn't know how to read. <laughs> the point of the Bible is to say, God is God and you're not. And, and there's tons of mystery in the, in, in the Christian faith. In fact, a whole lot of you who talk to me who are thinking about Christianity get irritated by the fact that, there, that the Bible doesn't, there's so many things the Bible doesn't speak to. You so said, what, what about this? Why does God do this? What is, and I said, I don't know. Oh, mystery again, mystery again. Well, a not, a, that's the mark of a non-totalizing meta-narrative. It doesn't have all the answers to everything, number one. Number two, it's not utopian. We do not believe the world will be what it needs to be till Jesus comes back. We, we have no illusions, and St. Augustine talked about this in his great book, City of God. We have absolutely no illusions that we can somehow bring in the kingdom of God before Jesus does it at the end of time. And St. Augustine would, would basically say uh, that every city has two cities. New York City has got in it what he calls the city of God and the city of man. That's how, that's how he put it. The city of man is a human society based on power and exploitation. The city of God are human societies based on love and service. And the fact of the matter is that even though some cities are better and, you know, sometimes the, the one city gets stronger than another, every city is two cities. So get rid of your utopianism. Uh, Republicans, stop being nostalgic about the past, how much better it was than now. Liberals, stop thinking in the future, we're gonna, if we just get social justice in there, everything's going to be okay. No, Christianity is not utopian. But here's the third thing. Does Christianity have a spirit of domination? domination? Does it lead that? Which is what all meta-narratives seem to. And this is where Balkum is so brilliant. He starts off by saying, he starts off by saying, everywhere in the Bible, there's this pattern seen. If you read the Bible all the way through as a coherent story, you're going to see over and over again, God subverts the worldly expectations of wisdom and power by choosing the weak, the foolish, or the powerless to accomplish his purposes. Okay, for example, God's always subverting the world's understanding of power. For example, I'm going to give you a bunch of names, most of whom you probably never heard of. Trust me, they're in the Bible, okay? So, for example, in the, old, in the uh, ancient times, it was absolutely, uh, the iron law was primogeniture, which meant the oldest son got all the family property, okay? And yet, what do you see going through? When God chooses someone to, to do his work, he chooses Abel over Cain, he chooses Isaac over Ishmael, he chooses Jacob over Esau, he chooses Joseph over Reuben, he chose, chooses little David over Eliab. When he's working with women, he subverts the cultural narratives by choosing not the most beautiful or the most fertile, but Sarah over Hagar, Leah over Rachel. When he... Uh, chooses little Israel over superpower Egypt. When he chooses his, uh, uh, his uh, leaders, when Israel first gets back into the promised land and all that, he chooses, they're called judges like Jephthah, Gideon, Samuel. They're always from powerless tribes. They're always 
from the, uh, you know, generally the lower status parts of the, of the, of the country. Interestingly enough, when you see the uh, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, where it gives you the genealogy of Jesus Christ, oh my word, not only in that patriarchal society, you never had women in those, in those genealogies, never, only men. But there's four women in, in Jesus' genealogy, mothers of Jesus, Tamar, an incest survivor, Rahab, a prostitute, Ruth, a Moabitess, an Auslander, you know, racial outsider, Bathsheba, who committed adultery. These are moral, racial outsiders, and yet they're mothers of Jesus. And when you get to Jesus himself, you see him always choosing to be with the lepers, choosing to be with the poor, choosing to be with the widows and the orphans, choosing to be with the tax collectors, the political outsiders, the moral outsiders. Why? Well, I guess the Bible, they just love the underdog. No. <laughs> Listen carefully. In, in Philippians 2, it says, being in very nature God, Jesus did not hold on to his equality with the Father, but emptied himself of his glory, came down to earth, died on the cross, became a mortal human being, and now he has the name which is above every name. Did you see that? Now, when it says, being in very nature God, he emptied himself of his power and privilege. Do you know what that means? If I say, being a nice guy, he helped a little old lady across the street. Being a nice guy, he helped a little old lady across the street. That's causative. Because he's a nice guy, he helped a little old lady across the street. That's what I mean. So when it says, being in very nature God, he emptied himself of his power and privilege. Do you know what that means? It's the nature of God to empty himself of his power and privilege. That people who don't do that are contradicting the fabric of the universe. They're going against the grain of the universe. They're contradicting the very nature of God. And it's not just that, we, you know, the Bible likes underdogs. No. Over and over again, God puts in the center what, who, uh, the person that the world puts on the periphery and puts on the periphery the person the world puts in the center. Why? Because the way Jesus Christ saved us was through poverty, through weakness. If he'd come in strength and said, follow me and be like me, and you will be saved, then only us strong, those, those strong people, those strong people who have had wonderful lives and had wonderful families and who can pull themselves together and be moral and disciplined, you'd be saved. But he didn't come like that. He didn't say, follow my example. He said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to pay the debt you owe for your sins, for justice, divine justice, so that you can be saved by grace. And so those of us who are not good can be saved too. In other words, Jesus Christ saved us through losing his power and therefore has the name of which above every name, meaning there is a way of getting power and influence, but through service. It's through laying aside your, your privilege and power and serving others in love. And therefore, if, what if the absolute is a man dying on the cross for his enemies, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. How can you bring that? If that's your moral absolute, if that's the absolute truth, T, capital T, to the degree to which you understand that, you cannot be an oppressor. You can work for justice, of course, but it can't make you an oppressor. And if there's Christians who are oppressors, they're not looking at the very heart of their own truth. So, yeah, time up. Uh, the, at the very end, what uh, uh, Richard Bauckham says, which is, I think, a great way to end, all I gotta do is find it, is where he says, 
The gospel of Jesus Christ provides a non-oppressive absolute truth, one that provides a norm outside us as a way of, escape, of escaping the ineffectiveness of relativism and of selfish individualism, yet one that cannot be truly used to oppress others. Thanks for listening today to Tim Keller on the Questioning Christianity podcast. We encourage you to subscribe and share this podcast series with others and discuss them with a friend. We hope you'll go on to listen to the Q&A session for this talk in the episode that follows. And remember that you can find more content about exploring Christianity by visiting gospelandlife.com slash explore. That's gospelandlife.com slash explore. The Questioning Christianity talks in this series were recorded in 2019 in New York City, where Dr. Keller spoke with a local live gathering made up of attendees who did not identify as Christian and their Christian friends who invited them.